we're focusing on a few horror films directed by women. And to kick things off, we'll be resurrecting the Stephen King classic, Mary Lambert's 1989 Pet Cemetery. Welcome back and enjoy the conversation. That's because I literally just woke up about like 20 minutes ago. You know what? I think it works though. Yeah. (laughs) It adds to the vibes, right? It totally does. Yeah. And you were nice enough to make coffee, so. I did brew us up some coffee. Much appreciated. Brought up some pastries. We're, you know, we're having a good morning here. Yeah. We're getting things started. Starting off with some horror. Let's let's do this. (laughs) So, um, Pet Cemetery. Yes. Uh, 1989's. Mm -hmm. The year of my birth. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. And interesting uh, that that's true. Uh, I'm something I want to point out that I'm finding about this about the book in general. I, I just started reading it uh, recently, well, listening to the audiobook. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm finding that uh, now having you know I've I've read The Shining, I've read Doctor Sleep, um, and I'm getting started with this. And I, I do know the story for the most part. Um, I'm I'm learning that it may be in, in the argument for my favorite, so I'm um, I'm interested to see how this hmm. how this goes with you know finishing the book. But I I have a feeling that it may end up being my favorite, and we'll get into why later. But I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, you like ghost kind of stuff, so it makes sense. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm I'm you interested. Like the I'm interested in informing myself in these things. <laughs> it's not that I just like ghosts. Um, it's a fascination. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and and we'll maybe we'll talk about that more later because I mean I will admit there is going to be a section on the supernatural in this podcast. Oh yeah, um, yeah, there is a little bit of a focus on that. Well, just with horror movies in general, I think there's always yeah um, a focus on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually it's a, it's a consistent it's theme, incorporated, but yeah. But I, I, the reason that I will get into it here, I, I will want to, is because of how Stephen King chooses to do that. It's it's very interesting. But yeah, again, we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um so to start, I guess we'll start talking about, you know, how we first came to see this film. Yeah, do you do, do you, you remember Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you jinx, first. Jinx. <laughs> I guess I'll go first then. Um I actually so I, growing up I saw this film in bits and pieces. Um I didn't actually see it uh, in its complete form until around the time the new, the recent adaptation came out. I think was it twenty eighteen that it came out? Or was it this year? Um, it may have been this year. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, I think, I think it, it was. I think it was earlier this year. I just can't believe so much has happened already. I know. We're in the already year? in we're like, already in fall. This is wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but so I made a point to watch it before 
I watched the newer one because I just wanted to have that kind of uh, experience of, you know, seeing the variation of adaptation. It's yeah. it's something that I like to uh, notice uh, with these kinds of things. I, I, I appreciate variation. You know, some people will say things like, oh, this is changed from the book. You know, well, I mean, it's it's a different, you know, uh, storytelling form. Things need to change. It doesn't always have to pay 100% respect. And, um, yeah, that's always going to happen. And in the case of, you know, getting another film, I kind of like that they vary it up. I, you know, if you're going to give me the exact same thing, then what's the point? And they do vary it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, the, the new one from Mary Lambert's film. So that was a cool uh, experience for me. But so, yeah, it was like a, a recent um, uh, experience of watching it in its complete form. Uh, so... You know, it took me a while to get to it, but um, it, it's again, it's interesting to see my overall interest in the story, uh, how quickly I'm becoming um, invested in it since just seeing it earlier this year. Uh, and so, um, yeah, do you remember your first experience? Um, watching it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it was a friend of mine who I think. I don't think I had seen this one. I think I'd seen bits and pieces of the It TV movie. And so it was a friend of mine, Leanna, who told me this one and It terrified her as a child. So we were Mm -hmm. just kind of hanging out and she put them on and we just had a movie night. Interesting. She said the It uh, miniseries terrified her. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, the clown. It was iconic. Mm -hmm. Pennywise. Yes. Um, And this one too. So... That was my first time because I was a little older. It was after high school okay. that I saw it. Yeah. And it was still creepy. I mean, you Absolutely. know, we can get into those areas that creep me out mm-hmm. later on. But yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it was obviously like an older movie. So I found that it grew better after watching it, you know, a few more times. Yeah. We, we were talking about recently that we think this film's kind of like a fine wine. Yeah. It just grows <laughs> on you more and more. And, yeah. The and more I don't know. time you spend with it, it really grows on you. I don't know if it's because you get older and the whole idea of death has mm-hmm. a different, you take on a different perception of that. Oh yeah. So maybe that's what affects your, your viewing each time you watch it. Okay. So, uh, I, I want to also talk about again, um, something we're going to continue to do here is the uh, discuss the format in which we watched the film to prepare for our podcast. Yes. So we actually watched the film twice leading up to this recording. Um, I want to say it was back in August. We actually went to uh, the uh, Hammer Theater to watch a um, programming of the film as well as the sequel, Pet Cemetery 2. Yeah, the Hammer Museum, Billy Wilder Theater. Yeah, Um we uh the ucla film and television archive put on a screening of of both with mary lambert in person and the um film was actually the the world theatrical premiere of its uh, new 4k restoration Mm -hmm. um which i gotta say was absolutely fantastic experience to 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 watch the film you know let's face it (laughs) For, for those of us who really appreciate film, there's nothing like sitting in a theater yeah. and getting the authentic, intended um, experience. You know, the, the proper sound mix, the proper um, perspective of, of, of the frames and how we're supposed to really experience all of that put together in a package. Mm-hmm. 
boy, did it play well. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh, more recently, uh, we also watched um, the film on Blu-ray, which was the, it was, it was remastered for that uh, Blu-ray collector's edition. I think it was released around the time the 2019 film released, I think a little bit before that, because there are some uh, promotional material on the Blu-ray um, for the 2019 adaptation. Yeah, it was like an HDR mm-hmm. scan, I think, of the film. Yeah. Which, you know, high dynamic range of that shows a lot more, you know, vibrancy and color and and clarity. Which we absolutely yeah, noticed. Yeah, we, we noticed that. And the graphics too, some of that uh, CGI that they kind of use mm-hmm. with the ghosts. You can you can tell they... Um, enhanced those. Yeah, enhanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so both turned out really great, but I, nothing is going to top that theatrical experience for me because... Yeah, it's a theater. Yeah, everything just played so top-notch that I'm... I was really so excited to be there for that. The sound especially, I think, the sound stood out. sound especially stood out. The sound in this one. film is so great. Yeah. And it really plays up in a theater. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about um, the crew on the film a little bit. Um, the film is directed by Mary Lambert, um, who, you know, before this was doing... She, she directed Siesta with Jodie Foster. Um, she directed a bunch of music videos. Yeah. Um, for she had just done Madonna's music video, I think, right before. Again, the call for Pet Cemetery. Right, exactly. Um, she so she's done music videos. Uh, I think she's done some for Janet Jackson as well. I think it was a like the Virgin. Yeah, like a Virgin one. Yeah. One. Classic. And, and it was cool. We got to see some of those um, music videos yeah, play they before played, the mm-hmm. the film as well. That was awesome. That was really neat. Um, she Did would, we mention it was a Q and A? Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was a panel. Mary Lambert was there as well yeah. as some of the uh, cast. They were there as well. Yeah. And that was mm-hmm. really cool to see. I, they said that actually that was like the first time they did that in L.A. So it was kind of a rare experience that we got to catch. Yeah. A quick plug for the UCLA Tillman, Film and Television Archive. They put on these screenings and, and programming like this uh, every month. And if, if you all haven't gone to them yet, you should really check them out because there's some neat... Uh, kind of rare um, screenings and panels uh, yeah. that they, they put on quite often. And mm-hmm. So you should look them up. But anyways, uh, so Mary Lambert directs um, and she was brought on with a little bit of hesitation at first because she wasn't sure that she wanted to be a horror director or that she felt like a horror director. It came mm-hmm. at a time when she didn't necessarily feel like one. But as she learned about the script and uh, talked with, Stephen King about the project she learned more and more that it was indeed a project for her because of the you know uh, family trauma kind of effect to it yeah um, and how that theme is so centered in the overall story um, and I'm really happy she did it I think she her uh, sensibilities her creative sensibilities really added to the imagery the, the thematic structure um, heavily and a lot of the reason it's so successful I think is how she kind of paints the picture Mm-hmm. Uh, in a cinematic form um and so stephen king is actually the one who writes the screenplay adapts the novel into the screenplay himself is this the only movie where he does that um actually i'm not sure um i want adaptation i want to look that up i i think he has even directed some of his adaptations before oh. um and i haven't seen those uh, i've only seen you know, I'm, I've seen a, I've actually seen a few of his uh, film adaptations, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure I've seen any of the ones he directed. Okay. This may be the only one that I've seen where he's directly involved in the adaptation. Okay. 
um, and something that I, I think it really pays off that he's here because, you know, the script is his, so he's adapting the way he thinks is the most important. Um, and something that also works really well is that it's shot in Maine, and I think that was important. And it was also in his, like, contract that that indeed happened because I guess with other times, most of his stories, you know, are in Maine. In Derry, Maine? No. <laughs> We're still on a on a high from it chapter two guys. We just saw it last night, so we're kind of on having like a Stephen King weekend. Um, Don't people say that that a lot of his films like take place in Derry? Um, I think so, but no. I and I have the name of where it takes place here, but we'll get to that in a bit. But but um, it was, yeah, it was in his contract that this be shot in Maine because uh, other stories of his have been in Maine but weren't set there in the films and had a problem with that and i think the setting was so important to this story that you know that like kind of countryside feel that i think it really worked here i'm really glad that he was involved with the project because i think it really paid off to have his you know connective tissue uh, or him bringing the connective tissue um mm-hmm. to the film uh so to get into the uh film's numbers a little bit it was budgeted at 11 million uh, around 11 million dollars and opening weekend, it made $12 million, um, at number one, and it stayed number one for uh, two more weeks. It earns, I think, a lifetime around $57 million, and it's the fifth highest earner in uh, Stephen King adaptations. Huh. Uh, number one is It Chapter One, then it goes The Green Mile, 1408, Misery, and then uh, Pet Cemetery. And actually, um, the 2019 adaptation had a few thousand less than the original hmm. so quite interesting actually and actually the interestingly enough the shining is 10th in stephen king's adaptations wow. yeah surprising huh but you know yeah. we do know that the film wasn't well received when it was released correct right so and stephen king himself is not the biggest fan of the film oh, that one yeah <laughs> which i can kind of agree we don't have to get into that too much but you know i mean that kind of falls into the area where i was talking about where like you know variation and adaptation is okay and so that's why, like, I, it's not that I'm mad, but part of me does kind of want a more complete adaptation of The Shining because yeah. the film we have with Kubrick is very much one sort of piece or one one sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It really focuses on one part, whereas there's so much more that goes on in that story that was left out. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, while I appreciate what Kubrick did, I still kind of want a more full uh, adaptation but anyways this isn't about the shining this is about pet cemetery (laughs) so um we can start talking about the film um but before we do we should just say guys again as always with these episodes we are talking spoilers if you have not seen mary lambert's pet cemetery i mean you can listen it's not to say that you shouldn't i mean maybe it'll entice you maybe it'll intrigue you to go back i mean listen this film's been out for how many years now i mean yeah how old are you yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm true. I'm in 1989, so <laughs> it's been out for around 30 years now. So, yeah. um, well, so with that out of the way, let's talk about story, shall we? Let's. Um, so I, I pulled this quote from Stephen King that I'd like to read uh, before we start talking about specific scenes and and lines and all. Um, this uh, was taken from the. Uh, audiobook that I've been listening to and he I think I don't know if this is actually there in the original book yeah I think this was made in like 2000 okay so it's in the foreword 
Yeah, so it's in the forward. It's in the author's notes at the beginning. Um, it, it plays before, um, you know, the, the the book starts, and and I think this came out around yeah, like I said, two thousand when the audiobook was made, probably. So this is what Stephen King says: When I'm asked, as I frequently am, what I consider to be the most frightening book I've ever written, the answer I give comes easily and with no hesitation: Pet Cemetery. It may not be the one that scares people the most. Based on the mail, I'd guess the one that does that is probably The Shining. But the fear bone, like the funny bone, is located in different places on different people. All I know is Pet Cemetery is the one I put away in a drawer, thinking I had finally gone too far. Time suggests I had not, at least in terms of what the public would accept. But certainly, I had gone too far at least in terms of my personal feelings. Put simply, I was horrified by what I had written and the conclusions I had drawn. Hmm. So, <laughs> that, um, there, there is much reason for why he feels this way. And so I think I'll get into why he feels this way before I, I want to start talking about the supernatural soon too. But yeah. um, I, I think we'll, I'll explain why he feels that way because I'm sort of starting it off with this. Um, and I don't think it should come as a surprise, um, what I'm about to say, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it makes so much sense. But so I'll start reading a little bit more about what he talks about in his foreword because it was, it's such a fascinating, uh, section in the book. So, um, in the late seventies, uh, Stephen uh, King was invited to spend a year at his alma, alma mater, the university of Maine. Uh, as the writer in resident, uh, re- writer in resident, um, and and also to teach a class on the literature of the fantastic, mm. um, he rents a house with his wife in Arrington, Maine, about twelve miles from the campus. Um, he says it was a wonderful home in town, but the only problem was the road they lived on, Route Five. It was busy with a lot of traffic from tanker trucks from the chemical plant down the road. Uh, His neighbor across the street told him early on to keep a close eye on his children and any pets they may have. Mm. Um, He says, that road was, that road has used up a lot of animals. Mm. Any of this starting to sound familiar? Yeah. There was a path into the woods nearby where there was, you guessed it, a pet cemetery for those that, for those pets that saw their end on the road. Uh, the sign was spelled how the book's title is spelled. Hmm. Um, his eight-year-old daughter had a cat named Smucky, who Stephen King found dead laying on the lawn across the street. Hmm. Um, not long after they moved in, he was buried in the pet cemetery and his grave marker read uh, Smucky. He was obedient. <laughs> and uh, I believe we see Smucky's name on one of the markers in the film. Huh. Um, Stephen King says... Uh, he uh, he he wasn't obedient. <laughs> he was a cat for heaven's sake. Um, yeah. But that the line, um, he was my cat. Let God have his own cat. Yeah. That actually came from his daughter. Huh. Um, his son was less than two, but could walk and was already practicing running. Hmm. Um, the family one day were fooling around in a field with a kite, and his son chases the kite toward the road. Hmm. Stephen King doesn't remember how, but he caught him on the edge of the road as he's hearing a truck Hmm. coming down the road quickly. Hmm. Um, 
and so um yeah and he you know gladly he saves his son it's not the same result but the elements of the film are all here mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's um yeah it, it just makes so much sense that that there is such a strong family story here there's something that he saw in his head put together right away and it's it's crazy so he says he simply took existing elements and threw that into the terrible what if you know he found himself not just thinking the unthinkable but writing it down um so he writes pet cemetery in uh, the neighbor's store in a vacant room he says when he finished he let the book rest for six weeks which he says is his way of working um and when he came back to it, he found the results so startling and so gruesome. He put the book in a drawer and think and thought it would never be published. The reason that the book ends up coming to be is um, he's trying to end a um, relationship with a certain publisher. Um, and to settle that partnership, he gives them this book because they wanted one more book. And so he says, okay, the, the book I have finished is Pet Cemetery." So he gives it to them. Um, he talks to his wife about it. Um, and she ends up telling him it's too good not to publish. Yeah. So he, he gives it to them and that comes like four or five years after it's written. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, and it totally makes sense as to why he would consider it, um, the the most terrifying to him because Mm -hmm. of his feelings, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's his family. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah. His daughter and son are the same ages as the kids in the film. His their cat dies. Yeah. And so it's basically like if this all came to the worst possible scenario. Yeah. And then he includes the you know the supernatural elements and all. Um, yeah. Boy, it's just a nightmare of a mm-hmm. <laughs> of a possibility. Yeah, the themes of like dealing with the death of your child. Yeah, and then yeah. dealing with uh, their. You know, first um, exposure to death, yeah. you know, children's exposure to death. Um, so l- we can maybe talk about some of these themes because I kind of want to ask you, and maybe they're hard to answer for us, especially since we're not parents. Right. But in, so in that specifically, you know, um, something that comes up, I think, is a, is a heavy theme in this is faith. Faith is heavily explored with the character of Ellie, um, the daughter in the film. You know, she she she's first asking about church um you know is is he gonna die uh after going to the pet cemetery she's all concerned and she's like you know uh she's she she asks lewis to promise her that he's gonna be okay right and 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 rachel her mother lewis's wife you know kind of gets mad when he doesn't answer right away yeah and she wants him to say yes and he does and then he's like you're gonna tell her later if something goes wrong right you're gonna talk to her about it Because he's upset about that. And then later, even after Gage's death, she asks Lewis, um, God could take it back if he wanted to, right? Can I have faith in that? Yeah. And so it's really, a, there's really this kind of consistent thing with her, especially where it's like, you know, what do we, what can we have faith in and, and how do we talk to children about death? Yeah. Um, yeah, I always thought it was an interesting take on faith and beliefs and mm-hmm. those being a blanket for death or like an an explanation to deal with the unknown. I feel like they deal really well with that theme yeah. in this film. Do you think he does right by promising her that church will be okay? In the beginning? Yeah, like do you think his decision to say yes and to give into what Rachel wants 
Do you mm. think they go about that the right way? I'm not. There's no right or wrong answer to me. I, I, um, I'm just curious what you think. I mean, I, I see why he would be mad at that. Like, if something happens, how do we explain that? Like, we just lied to our kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do we explain why we lied? Yeah, see, the thing is, like, is it is anything better than lying or anything worse than lying? I mean, like... I don't know, and I uh, and I think that's worse why than like, I mean, yeah. why having animals is a good lesson for kids to deal. Mm-hmm. It's usually their first introduction to death. There's having a lot a of pet, love involved usually, yeah, and, and having a pet because they go faster than usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so as terrible as it is to lose a pet, it's even harder to lose a parent or yeah, you know another but they've relative. Dealt with that but they've dealt already, with that in a way those that, emotions, mm-hmm. and they know how to deal with that emotion. And so the fact that Lewis kind of takes that away from her. Right. She doesn't know how to deal with that. Right. Which and he himself doesn't know how to deal with it either. Right, exactly. Because he doesn't know what to tell her. Like, he struggles in telling her what he even believes in, especially after he brings the cat mm-hmm. church back to life. And that's when she asks him that question, right? Like, he could take it back if he wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of knows, like, oh, I know a way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and, and again, I mean, another theme here is, is coping. It's it's you know it's grief, coping with grief. Exactly, pain too, yeah. mm-hmm. and all yeah. the things that kind of come, all the other emotions that come with death and how to deal with it. You know, you deal with grief and anger and obsession. Guilt. I think obsession is also yeah. Uh, it ties to guilt specifically. Yeah. I think it does. Both mm-hmm. of those in this film kind of go hand in hand because, yeah, I mean, he can't cope. And he's so he's clinging so hard to to those emotions that he gives in. Yeah. And um, I think to a degree that's Rachel has never really coped with her grief that she experienced as a child. Right. And so Mm. she's carried that with her. And that's kind of translated into how she parents. Yeah. uh, Ellie specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I, I just think it's it's really wonderful that these lessons and and debates come up in this film mm-hmm. because it's a really complicated tricky conversation to have right yeah um how do we go about raising kids to teach them about death i mean it's it's, it's emotional it's complicated and it's it's hard for everyone and everyone kind of also handles it differently so and to like give them some kind of shred of hope of like everything's gonna be okay right that's yeah. so bleak and somber mm-hmm. and dark like yeah you know, nothing happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like, I don't know what happens. Yeah. Um. Oh, so I'm seeing a natural segue here for me. Okay. To get into a little bit about the, um, you know, we're talking about faith. And uh, with faith, I think, can kind of tie to the supernatural elements of the film. Um, and so I've kind of had this interesting experience with um, getting into... Stephen King's uh, readings and learning a little bit about the supernatural uh, simultaneously. Um, I've been reading uh, casework from Ed and Lorraine Warren. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Conjuring films are based on the two of them, the, the two lead characters in those films. And um, so, the, you know, these are real people who studied the um, supernaturally occult. Uh, Lorraine Warren is a uh, clairvoyant um, and uh ed was a uh not ordained but he's a uh, still i think one of the only non-ordained demonologists and 
So I've kind of gone back and forth. I've read like a book of theirs and then I read Stephen King and then I read another book of theirs and I read more Stephen King and now I'm reading <laughs> Pet Cemetery again. And the reason I bring that up is because, okay, it's, I'm not going to say, yes, all everything that I'm reading about, you know, the demonic and the occult is all real from what I'm, from what I'm reading from them. But yeah. I will say that, you know, they allude to a lot of factual evidence that has been acquired and is out there based on their, you know, cases and a lot of what's written um involves cases that have witnesses there and factual evidence to a degree and i haven't done that much research i've just read these books but you know um it's just interesting to me the connections between what they say are you know um that there's evidence for and in the kind of activity that they that they experience and the way that stephen king paints the supernatural in his books yeah um they're very accurate they're very much the same and that's just fascinating to me because i i find it curious that he seems to have done his homework at the very least i don't really know to what degree stephen king why he's so involved with or why he has such a strong understanding at least of what is supposedly the you know, like <laughs> accurate re- way to represent the supernatural, mm. the occult. But I think it's fascinating, nonetheless, that it seems to 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 be so accurate. Um, if you want to use that word, yeah. So uh, recently, I read the Demonologist um, uh, on the, I think the main primary book on case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, and I pulled some quotes. So if you've read. Pet Cemetery. if you've seen this film, you'll understand how these quotes connect. But I just want to read them just to throw them out there and maybe have a little fun conversation here. But these quotes all come from um, Ed Warren um, in an interview. And a lot of the way the demonologist plays out is through interview. So he says this about the demonic. The strategy of the demonic is to break down the will of the human being in order to possess the body or to oppress the individual to commit some negative act, preferably uh, one involving bloodletting or death. Um, He says, hell breaks loose because someone crossed the line or committed a supernatural transgression of the highest order. Uh, Spirits can play on a victim's vanities, so like someone lonely without friends, or maybe someone depressed about, you know, the death of their child. Um, (laughs) I, I added that last part. Um, the de- the demonic cannot directly interfere in human affairs. People have to play by rules too. Therefore, when one violates rules through his own free will, he is then on his own. The powers of the demonic are theologically limited to temptation. They cannot make you do something against your own will, but it can influence you to commit actions you might not ordinarily. Uh, just as people break the rules, so does the demonic. And so that quote specifically seems to be relative to me to how events play out before the death of Gage. You know, there's so much foreshadowing to his death, to Church's oh, death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could interpret all of that foreshadowing as, uh, and you know, even them moving to this home and him not really doing his research on, you know, what's occurred here. What's the, the even the size of their lot in the book? That's part of it. You know, he. He doesn't even realize how far it extends and that this pet cemetery is there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so the fact that there's this burial ground um, and, and signs of rules being broken and of a strategy in motion, I think you could kind of interpret it that way. 
Um, Ed Warren continues, I cannot straightforwardly tell you that reincarnation is something uh, everyone goes through. He says, I can tell you I have cases on file of certain individuals who have lived more than one life. No proof, though, that all people experience that phenomenon. Uh, when the demonic is involved in any case, you're dealing with a disruption of the natural order. Consequently, a person who makes a deal with the demonic and actually experiences rebirth into another lifetime has done so under questionable circumstances. That additional lifetime would have to, at some degree, be considered a bogus incarnation. Uh, so listen, again, I'm not saying that all of this is real. I'm simply saying that um, there's a lot of interesting connections, and the research into the demonic and the occult uh, is there, and it seems that Stephen King has done his homework. Um, and, you know... The mythology uh, of it yeah, all. It's, you feel it's, like he nailed... I feel like he nailed it. I feel like it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, and um, I think it's a reason that it's also it works on a terrifying level and a horror level. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you for listening to my uh, yeah. <laughs> rant on the supernatural. <laughs> but I think it's important. You know, I, I, it's such a heavy part of this film. And so much of this feels like it's about um, it's about the family stuff. But it's also about pure evil, you know, kind of natural evil. Um, yeah, or like uh, infecting people's lives, and yeah, you know. I feel like it's a side of the spiritual that shouldn't be messed with. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Don't like, mess with spirits, guys. Like, yeah, or like and openly inviting, you know. Yeah. Spirits that you may not fully understand. Yeah, opening doorways to uh, to spirits is not a good idea. Yeah. So. Um, we're talking about story, so I guess we can start talking about some scenes in the film that stood yeah. out to us. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go first? Um, yeah, I mean, I have like kind of like a mix of scenes and sort of th thematic things that play out. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, um, I do like the whole Micmac burial ritual and yes. the, the mythos that come with that and mm -hmm. like each bury their own right. I, I like that he sets kind of those rules and the mythology of it all i love that line yeah um one of the most horrifying scenes for me is the rat that uh, church drops in the bathtub yeah, first of all i don't really take baths like that mm -hmm. um but that like worst nightmare uh, just yeah that rat being tossed bloody in bloody rat just being tossed in and while he, i'm trying to relax it's kind of mad too like lewis takes a minute to get out of the water i'm like dude get yeah, up like, like <laughs> well, why are we waiting it's the shock value of it all like is this real right now <laughs> yeah i guess so um i would just immediately leap out of that and like probably hit my face on the ground <laughs> yeah yeah um, uh, I agree, and and I like to quickly add that I like that Judd often has these lines that sort of tell you what's going on in this story. Yeah, you know he has all of these quick lines that really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Paint it all. Yeah, he each bears his own, Lewis. Yeah, <laughs> in that voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, also the maid killing herself mm. because of the cancer pain that she's dealing with mm -hmm. i feel like is another example of not being able to deal with death yes and dealing with pain mm -hmm. um kind of those you know another thematic beat in that i don't know how it plays out in the book mm -hmm. feels like a little out of nowhere in the movie mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. you know um 
but they do give hints like her her stomach hurting and right and uh she's afraid of lewis even checking her out you know because right. i think she's worried about the outcome she doesn't want that like she, she knows something's wrong she doesn't yeah, want to be told that yeah that assurance like yeah you have cancer because mm-hmm. she says pretty sure i have cancer i can't take the pain yeah you know so that was um heavy yeah it was heavy um something that could be explored more but i mean it's a movie you can't right. you know it's a whole nother tangent mm-hmm. um something that uh to to follow up on that in terms of you know uh, continuing along the theme of grief and coping um and family especially i love two scenes in particular that tie or that show the closeness between lewis and gage um first uh, in the scene when um it's kind of like a change they're showing a change in season so like you're seeing ellie remove like a halloween decoration from the window and, and she puts up a thanksgiving one and like it's it's right before like rachel's gonna take them on their trip them and the kids her yeah. and the kids mm-hmm. um and in that moment you see lewis and gage like happy playing together yeah so you know they're establishing they're, they're taking a little bit of a beat to show the happy family yeah to show the bond mm-hmm. so i love that that moment's there he's like there he's holding them he's picking them up and like making them laugh and they're smiling and laughing together it's a beautiful moment later on when he digs up gage's body the first thing he does is just hold him yeah his his you know gage's corpse and and i think it's in like a bag or something or it might just be a sexual body but he he just holds him he digs him up and he's crying and he's holding him yeah and that's another like uh, such a heavy emotional moment yeah I mean, imagine, you know. Uh, I don't want to. Yeah, so wanting his um his grief to end, right? His pain mm-hmm. that he feels to end. That's what makes him resort to that. Yeah. He doesn't want to feel that anymore. Right. And um, another theme I f- feel like that plays into is the scenes with Zelda, which are one of the other one, scariest moments of the film oh to me are all the yeah. scenes with zelda Ugh. the first time i watched it i was like this is creepy so change the channel right guys yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't expecting that and she still it holds i think to this day oh, it how holds creepy up, absolutely that is yeah and so even with that like rachel quote-unquote wants her pain to end mm-hmm which is the reason why she kind of doesn't do anything and lets her die yeah she talks about like wanting her to die yeah She's like, I, I well, prayed for, for her to die. reasons yeah. a little bit too. Oh, yeah. But she like, sees her I feel her like she's a more psychotic one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, in a way. I don't know. She's been dealing with this the longest, internalizing all this the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and to talk about Zelda, to continue along that, um, you know, the when, when that scene comes when Rachel meets the reborn Gage, and first he appears as Zelda. Oh yeah. Oof. I mean, you know, there's there's weight in that alone. Yeah, the that fact that he represents himself terrible. as her because he knows that that is her. Like that plays into her fear. That plays into her trauma. You know that. Um. And and in, in that that when she sees her son, instead, that her fear would sort of be driven away. Yeah. Right. Um. So the demonic force is using her fear to um yeah i guess to it, it's playing with her emotions and the um 
I like also that the outfit that he's wearing in that moment, the little blue outfit with the cane. Oh, yeah, matches the painting. Yeah, matches the painting in her old home. Yeah. And that's such a creepy thing. Uh, we heard Mary Lambert talk about that and how that painting is supposed to be reminiscent of, like, portraits. Well, that's, yeah, that's what reminded her. Right. It reminded her of, like, the portraits they used to take in, um, I forget. Back in the day when people yeah, like the renaissance era yeah, i think people's children died and they wanted to remember them as they were yeah so a lot of the times like these babies would die and and they wanted to remember the children that they had mm-hmm. so they would often pose portrait style with their dead babies in their arms mm-hmm. and so there's she said it was something also like there's something eerie about looking totally at, freaking eerie at those yeah. photos because you can kind of tell but then they're all dressed up in this like yeah, yeah. nice dresses or nice outfits and so that he's wearing the outfit to reflect that and it's, it's yeah that's, dude, that seems creepy yeah and he's like he's like i have something for you mommy and it's yeah. that little scalp and you just yeah. off screen hear him stabbing her and she screams yeah. it's crazy crazy scene dude. yeah crazy scene yeah um but it's maximum emotional manipulation in that yeah. scene mm-hmm. that, that's it's front and center yeah yeah the complex feelings of that mm-hmm. um and i mean i i don't we can end with this or if you have one more and then we can move on to sure, the sure. next let's do that one but um i was just gonna say um like scene I was going to say also, I, I, I don't know, like overall scene, I guess, or theme or, or uh, character arc is like Doc Lewis, his mm. um, ongoing dissension, you know, and he begins to lose it. And just at the end, like he never really learns to deal with grief yeah. until he becomes completely alone. Like he's even playing solitaire, I think, yeah. uh, when he's waiting for his wife to come mm. back from the dead, mm-hmm. you know, so the fact that he is going to be alone and the one he brings back kills him so his fear of death leads him leads to, to die to his own death. yeah so Oof. wild and that whole scene too when they're just making out or kissing oh, and like dude. she's just gushing she's just oozing yeah her like, eye and stuff and yeah like, oh my goodness that is such a great like and he's really kissing her like they're yeah. like he's they're getting... going after it yeah <laughs> That is such a crazy moment, and to end on that, and you yeah. know, you technically, we don't see her kill him. No, she's you holding hear up, it, though. She's holding. You you hear it. Okay. Yeah, you hear you it. Hear so it. it's not really open for interpretation. He no, screams, you, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. He's dead. He's dead. Yeah. So it's not really open for interpretation, but it's yeah. interesting that he she because he can't he he's still in the end like he can't do it he can't deal with it being alone and right. having his you know his family dead like he, he needs so i them. feel like he'll just give in yeah at the end right. like all right and then maybe they'll even bury him again yeah and that's just join him i think this is a, a place where we need to give some credit to mary lambert because um and maybe stephen king as well maybe he wrote it this way too but um so we just mentioned two times right now two occurrences in which the sort of gruesome nature of the kills are not necessarily on screen but what is is the emotional familial connections yes you know that's the that's the focus we're seeing them hold each other we're seeing them kiss because they do kiss like yeah. i mean the, the zombie woman kisses him and sure yeah. it's, it's again yeah. playing with his emotions yeah it's me i'm gonna kiss you meanwhile my yeah, arm is like sticking I'm out back. with a knife uh-huh you know like 
so it's it's another instance in which that kind of thing happens manipulation but focus on the the tenderness mm-hmm. um and and sort of then just through audio hearing the right the killing yeah and to, and we can move on from here to cinematography All because right. what you're saying like kind of just showing the gruesomeness or you know without exactly showing it mm. um is something I feel like they did really well. I mean, I guess it's a little bit of cinematography and editing, but that's the death of Gage. Oh yes, yes. And so, like, they just, the sh- they just show the shot of the kite being like jerked out of frame mm-hmm. from the sky, and then the shoes kind of bent, bouncing down the road with some blood on them. Yeah, and so it shows violence without showing gore, and I feel like that was the perfect way to show, especially a child's death. Yeah, you know. How do you approach that? Yeah, yeah. and like he. I think that was done really well done. The editing of that, like you yeah. get it just by the sim- symbolism of the images. Yeah, gently but effectively. Yeah, and and very evocative. And brutal. Yeah. yeah. Um, Still. And and you know mixed in that within there are those flash sort of shots of you know um, different photographs, right? Of of Lewis and and like and Gage. I think because you know you what happens after you see those images is. You hear Lewis, on, you know, as he gets on his knees, give that huge wail of a scream. Yeah. And then the quick flashes come in of him with Cage, even oh, younger. Yeah. Sort of different flashes of his youth until. Yeah. You know, just to show the the love that was there and yeah. why he's so Flashing emotional. Flashing of someone's life. Right? That was a really beautiful moment, even as <laughs> it's weird to say beautiful here. But, you know, again, to show that yeah. sort of more tender side as opposed to it's a disfigured body on the ground yeah mm-hmm. you know it's it gets at the center of why this is so scary yeah, yeah. um and so yeah we're talking about cinematography so um real quick we'll talk about the um cinematographer in the film his name is peter stein um he also shot friday the 13th part two he shot chud and he also shot elvis and me which um is interesting because uh Dale Midkiff, who uh, plays Lewis in this film, plays Elvis in Elvis and Me. Elvis. Um, the uh, the film was shot on 35 millimeter with uh, Panavision cameras uh, and lenses. Um, and so um, another shot that I want to highlight as one of my favorites in the film, if not the favorite, is the POV that we see from the swing as Ellie is riding the swing early in the film looking down on the path that leads into the woods yeah. to the pet cemetery yeah. it's like there's the motion of going back and forth like you're on a swing yeah but it's it's still kind of centered on that path yeah and I mean I think uh, part of the reason I love it is the design of the path and we'll talk about that later it's such a creepy path but I love that perspective shot yeah. You know, it really puts you in the moment of like, oh, what's over here? And yeah, the, the curiosity, <laughs> the even curiosity as a viewer, and, and the, you know. And there's something about the way the perspective works on the swing that, yeah, that just feels even eerier, if that's a word, eerier. It is now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I like, I like the POV type of shots always. Mm. I even like the... Um, the insinuation of something coming yeah 
you know. So there's like that crane into that house. Oh, that's another Pascal one. When Pascal visits yeah. mm-hmm. um, Lewis. Yeah. And so just the feeling of like, oh, there's something um, spiritual yeah. almost coming from up above into the home. Yeah, like yeah. literally that crane goes from the floor to the window and yeah. then we're in the bedroom and he's there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I love those little things yeah, too. Yeah, that's great. Um, And... I mean, you talked about the pathway, and I just love how they light the pathway, like the glistening of the stones along the path. Yes, like the and moon, it's, it's all green you know, too. And, I mean, at day at daytime, it's all yeah. it's all green around. And they it. add some fog at some point yeah, to yeah, make yeah. it more eerie, eerier. Mm. Eerier, see, it works. <laughs> We're going <laughs> with this. We're going with this. <laughs> I do, I do like that a lot. Um, it gives it more of a supernatural, spiritual kind mm-hmm. of uh, essence. Well, with dealing with the path, again, when it's like daylight, I like that it goes from like green and vibrant kind of Mm -hmm. to like, oh, the woods over there are super dark and like, you know, kind of this like feel it feels like we're going from like light to evil in a way. And I think that's another another theme that plays in in, uh, pretty well here. It's the themes of evil and and good. Yeah. Um, do you have another shot you want to talk about? Oh, definitely. I have yeah. a few. <clears throat> yeah, um, there's the one oh, when Gage is entering the room, mm-hmm. um, I think, to take the scalpel. Yeah. And so when it's like a dolly in and it's like from shadow, from his shadow into physical life mm. with his hand reaching into the bag. So it starts off at a sh- as a shadow and then. And then you see his actual physical hand in the frame reaching into the bag. Yeah, and I creepy. think you said it when we were watching it and mm. like kind of quote unquote bringing him back to life. Yes. From from death into, you know, mm-hmm. life. And so that's a, that's another great shot. I always like kind of like shadow play. Yeah. Um, shots. Yeah. Really excellent crafting there to establish the idea that he was brought back to life. Yeah. Even the shadows of Rachel entering the room with Zelda, they like play with the shadows of the ladder and it gives like this abstract, almost like Hitchcock kind of feel mm-hmm. in those. I don't know if you remember those um, scenes, mm-hmm. but they're some of my favorites. Yes. Um, but something I wanted to ask you is, I don't know if you did any research or found out, but what is that face that pops out at uh, Lewis Doc? Remember when he goes back to the Micmac burial? ground and there's like this moment where this like face pops no, out no i didn't find anything on that no okay. um but i know exactly what I'm you're sure talking it's about in the book and it explains it probably it's a little weird as a viewer because like you can the... tell it's like a human face mm. you don't know what the heck it is yeah i mean I, i'm curious it's something i'll you know look out for when i'm as i continue to go um along the book yeah i, I remember we kind of looked at each other like and had to kind of rewind and pause to see what the hell this face is yeah, we couldn't make it out we could not make it out but it seems to be some kind of demonic um yeah flash of some kind you know because he's doing this unnatural thing yeah um but yeah we're not really sure what that no. was <laughs> um do you have any i have a more but go for it no go for it i don't want to keep it all the time um I lo- also like the tracking shots of the feet when people are entering, like when when Gage is about to kill everybody, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, Judd entering the house and it's just kind of tracking his feet. Yeah. I don't know. I just like those moments of different perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly if it's trying to symbolize anything, but 
the decision to focus on that yeah part of the body mm-hmm. and because they do it with rachel as well mm-hmm. when she comes into the house so the i don't end. know if yeah. it's like mm-hmm. um gage's perspective being so tiny or mm-hmm. something like that i, I don't know but uh, anyways I, I like those yeah it adds like a little variety and a little bit more of an uneasiness yeah. to the scene sort instead of, of sneaking kind of feel at yeah. eye level yeah exactly yeah like something's following something's coming towards them Ugh. yeah yeah <laughs> so all right i mean those are um you know standouts yeah. for me mm-hmm. i think we mentioned one already which was the the shot of rachel and she's she's um you see the painting in the back right right yes. behind her mm-hmm. yeah. i like the framing of that mm-hmm. a lot it's a great shot too like a foreshadowing of what we're about to see there's a lot of foreshadowing in this yeah. film yeah Mm-hmm. Um, so with that I mean uh, do you have any other cinematography now we can move on to editing yeah, if you have any let's yeah let's move on there. to editing I do have a few of editing as well let's start off with um, that because I've taken up a lot of time <laughs> no problem um, the editors in the film are Daniel Hanley and Mike Hill they seem to be a pair that works together a lot um, so some of the things they've worked on together are Willow Backdraft Apollo 13 hmm. A Beautiful Mind hmm. Rush how the Grinch stole Christmas. Huh. Um, so we talked a little bit about the scene of Gage's death with the photos flashing in. I love how those flashes are timed in that moment and paced to intercut between li- like real time events and you know the memories to yeah just subtly uh, plant those emotional beats within this horrific scene. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think the sound also works really well. It's kind of like this old kind of shuttered camera sound. Right, of moments past. Of moments past, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I really like how those scenes are timed and also colored in that moment. I feel like they have kind of a, um, like a grayer like scale oh, kind of moment. Uh-huh. Yeah, kind of a vintage look to it, yeah. Um, so that, that scene, I think, is just really well done for me. And I, even how you brought up before how the moments or the shots come in. Uh, to show the kite flying off and all, I, I, I think yeah. it's all timed really well to lead up to that moment and then to take it emotional. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a respectful way to show an innocent child's death. Yes, yes. And um, yeah, in doing that, you have to show some some of those good memories, so it's not so brutal. Um, I mean, a, a lot of. I mean, a lot of what we talk about is going to be about Gage, I feel like, because mm. he's such a big... I think it's appropriate. Yeah. So, I mean, I like the... I know you liked it, too. We had the same reaction when we watched it together um, the second time. But the smash cut from from the guys drinking on the pork, uh, Lois, Lewis and um, Judd, when they're drinking on the porch, and it's a smash cut into Gage walking with his toy truck. Mm-hmm. And just like the loudness of the wheels the, rolling the on toy the wheels rolling on the wood, yeah. on the wood, um, similar to the Arinko trucks mm-hmm. that fatally kills uh, Gage. Yep. So another foreshadowing there: the fact that it's him driving that truck down yeah. the yeah he's down like, the road. He hits the box, se. and then he's like, "Uh oh." Yeah. Uh oh. Yeah. We didn't talk about the uh ohs in, yeah. in the story element, <laughs> yeah. but the uh ohs well, are all we'll over get the place. Into Gage his yeah. whole performance yeah but I, for the kids yeah he i love the uh-ohs because the, there's an uh-oh there and he says uh-oh when his kite flies uh-oh off there. in that scene if you pay attention 
um when in, in the scene of his death he says uh-oh again yeah yeah and it's also like ugh, real quick like what why did they just let this kid run off on his own oh yeah moment? yeah i gotta say real quick like dude no like he's running toward the road already <laughs> and then lewis turns his back to him yeah i mean this is i think every parent's <clears throat> fear which is probably why stephen king says it's like so personal to him like yeah probably had this fear all the time especially if he had uh close encounters mm-hmm. with his own child yeah and it's like that thing where a lot of parents i think will say like i turned my back for one for one know, second for one second yeah, and yeah. this happened or this almost happened like there's always these close encounters of them saving their child it might be my experience of like growing up um you know in a latino family where i don't know it happens in every family it does and so it's not to say that every latino family is the same but i mean there is this i feel like this kind of thing where it's like at least growing up in my household it was like go where i can see you yeah you better not go too far or else you're in trouble you know so there was always this feeling of i can't go off on my own you know, yeah. kind of a thing. I think there was also more of a carelessness in the 80s. I mean, this is the late 80s, yeah. not to be the mm-hmm. 90s. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot more careless and, kid, you know, mm-hmm. kind of let your kids kind of run around sure. a little bit more free back then yeah. before all these, like, horrific things started to happen. And families and parents were a lot more, are a lot more protective, I think, of their kids nowadays. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah. it's like a, it's a time thing, you know, Yeah. also. Um, uh, we're talking about Gage and Lewis. Uh, another scene that I want to bring up the editing of is or highlight the editing of is when he, w- at the end when they're having their you know battle, and um, Lewis is about to inject Gage with the uh, serum poison whatever it is. Yeah. Um, he, Gage is walking toward him, um, and there are again these flashes to when to happier times, and I think it's specifically the scene with, when they're playing in the field with the kite. Yeah. And, and so it's like you see like it's a close-up of gage walking toward him at the end and then quick cut to when his face smiling and having fun with the kite yeah. and then cut back to maybe lewis terrified yeah <laughs> and then like there's this happens a few times in that scene so you see how emotional lewis is to have to understand that like what i'm gonna have to do is kill my kid right now yeah even if it is a zombie version you know it's still his kid and it's like Damn, like he lost his kid through an accident, and now he's gonna kill his kid. Yeah, well, it's his own doing. It's his own doing, absolutely. <laughs> it's his own doing. That's why you know, again, he's on his own here. Yeah. Um, but it's such an emotional scene, um, especially when he does it, and you hear Gage scream, and you see Lewis's <laughs> face, and his kind, of, he's kind of shaking in disbelief, or, or you know, like shock that he had to do this, and. You know, I, it's like, damn, it's even worse than losing your kid through an accident. Yeah. I always laugh at that scene because it ends with, like, Gage saying, not fair. Yeah. Not fair. <laughs> kind of cute. Kind of <laughs> like, chuckle a little bit. He's just walking. But again, he's walking away, and then I think you hear him thud. Yeah, he falls against the wall. As he... And a great performance, too. I mean, yeah. Real quick. To he's, say like, that. two or something like in the movie. Old, and he's, and like... he's saying lines and doing a performance. And when he gets injected, you see his face. You make this kind of face, like, ah, oh, like, yeah. like, as if it hurt or something, yeah. you know? And he makes an appropriate sound. Maybe to... they did inject him with something. No. <laughs> they didn't put that needle in his neck. <laughs> um... Yeah, um, I was going to say, you could also interpret those flashbacks while he's injecting Gage with a needle 
Kind of like him letting go or him thinking he needs to let go of those memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, to let go of Gage himself, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's just so... You'd think he'd learn that time and then he goes and buries his wife. Oh, yeah. Know? It's like, come on, dude. Dios meal. Come on. <laughs> what you doing, Louis? Like, didn't you... <laughs> For real, yeah. it's it's the the Think men in this film are, are quite frustrating. Men, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> him and Judd. Judd, I'm sorry, I mean, we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, but Judd is such a stupido to me. Like, yeah, well, I feel like they treated his character a little bit better in the the newer remake, the 2019. Mm. Um, I don't know. They gave him a little bit more of, or like his intention was a little bit more clear to me. Yeah. In 2019, again, I don't know how far it veered off from the book. Yeah, I need to get and through this the one. Book a lot to... of the times, it's like, what are you doing? Like, you, you know, yeah, like you, you, his purpose you, was a little lost. You buried your dog, and it didn't work, and, and he came back as this zombie dog that wanted to and attack you. And then he had you. to help kill the the guy that comes yeah, back so it's by like, burning the house. Why? It's like, why would you show him this place? Because if his, it's so tainted, his daughter wanted his cat. You knew it wouldn't be her cat. Yeah, if the soil if the soil is sour, why are you gonna keep? doing this like and, and it's something that comes up in the book is that you know he seems to be out there on his porch all the time as if he's like a watcher you know as if he's like trying to keep an eye on what's going on out here yeah so then why are you taking this man's cat yeah over there to to show him this and to bring more attention to this thing yeah like what are you doing yeah. so so i, I feel like that uh character was handled a little bit better in not the, to say I, I like the performance here and i and again i like all the lines he has i think yeah. he, the performance it's is some great classic lines yeah it's just sure. man, like stupid. But anyways <laughs> well let's um, move on to um sound yes let's do that we? yes so sound editor on the film is jane lang uh jane does the sound editing on the texas chainsaw massacre 2 oh, dope. Oh. as well as stand and deliver um oh. Yeah, it's kind of neat. I love Stand and Deliver. Um, yeah. Hamilton Sterling is another editor um, who did Magnolia, The Tree of Life, Logan, and A Mighty Wind, mm. to name a few of his. I think he did a lot more. I took a few names, so I'm just going to read them off. Um, production sound mixer on the film is Mark Ulano. And Mark Ulano has quite a long list. Yeah. Um, interestingly, he seems to be at a certain point and on Quentin Tarantino's main uh, production sound mix guy. Mm. He did Kill Bill 1 and 2, nice. Inglorious Bastards, and Django Unchained, Jackie Brown, Death Proof, Once oh, Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood, Hateful Eight. Wow. He also did Cujo, so in connection here. Um, <laughs> and uh, Iron Man, he also did, and uh, Titanic. So wow. this guy's done a lot. Yeah, And that's variety. just, I mean, just, you know, if y'all are in uh, film school, think about sound, dude. You will get work if you can do some good oh, sound. Oh, for sure. Um, so, sound moments in the film. Um, do you want me to start? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, probably arguable, maybe not my favorite, but one of my favorite sound elements to the storytelling is when the opening credits roll, the opening scenes of the cemetery come in. Um, it's like we're covering the full pet cemetery, not the burial ground, the, the Indian burial ground, but the cemetery itself. And, um, so we're seeing, you know, the headstones, their markers, and in the background, you're, there's some music, but you also hear different kids um, talking about their pets. Yeah. They're like reading the their markers, eulogy. giving their eulogies. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so creepy, man. 
um <laughs> but it's so effective they're nice pure words yeah they're pure words they're happy but words kids whispering or creepy and, but then you're hearing this that? like this this score that i guess it's appropriate to start talking about it in this section that to me blends those evil and good um themes um very lightly like i mean are, are very i don't know what the word is but it's it's really treading along that line because it's it's kind of creepy but also kind of tender again i'm using that word a lot tender yeah here like which um, I, I don't know maybe it's a complicated way i feel about that scene but and that's the whole point of this film i guess but it, i think it it's such a great way to start things off yeah you know to to let you know what you're in for um and um yeah we see spot on uh, one of the dogs uh i think you even hear judd as a kid talking about spot huh. in that in oh, that yeah, opening yeah. sequence uh-huh. and uh you don't know until later that that was his dog spot um, as well as the insects that you hear in this scene and they sort of build up towards the end of it when you look at like the deadfall of all the trees you know trashed up on each other yeah um that sort of act as like a barrier but also kind of a gateway to the right real supernatural stuff going the on Mac burial mm-hmm. and once round. you focus on that the music uh, intensifies the insects and all intensify the evils growing in yeah the right um so love the sound in that opening scene yeah I mean, you mentioned it, like the the insects. Like, there's a um, a moment when Pascal visits, and it, like the crickets get really loud, and they overpower the whole scene. Mm-hmm. And when we watch it at the Bill Wilder Theater, you can heal. He- you can heal. <laughs> you can hear because it's such a high frequency of the crickets. Yeah, you kind of feel the vibrations inside of your body, yeah. and it just makes you so uncomfortable. Yeah, I felt that way. Yeah, like I just wanted it to end. Yeah, um, so that was another thing I felt like came with the remastering the 4K. They probably, mm-hmm. you know, cleaned up that audio a little bit more. Yeah. Um, another moment I like the sound in is when they rip the cat off of the ground. I wrote this one too, dude. Yeah. Yes. And how we, how Judd describes it, it sounded like ticky tape coming off a letter. Oh man. So it's like exactly what it sounded like if i had to guess though like foley wise to me it sounds like someone's pulling roots out of the ground and yeah and and um something like i don't know that too and i mean you could almost it almost sounds like bones yeah too. like bones like, cracking or something yeah, yeah. Uh, ripped off of the maybe it's ground. a blend of all these things but yeah so great yeah i like that that because uh, yeah that well, sound a lot what it's also supposed to mean for the story yeah you know the 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 soil is the soil is sour yeah yeah and that's where this cat's like, gonna be coming yeah. from <laughs> soon. Like he's dead dead yeah like there's no you didn't bury him alive he dead dead yeah he dead dead <laughs> <laughs> um um i another one I, as we're talking about body kind of sounds a little bit here is zelda um mm. There's a couple moments where we, you know, there's one in particular, I forget, I think it's the first, and we see Zelda like twice or three times in this film, right? I think, yeah, two or three, something like that. And one of those times, Zelda's like sitting up and she just like quickly twists her body around toward Rachel at the doorway. Yeah. And that moment in particular. Yeah. There's spinal meningitis. Yeah, spinal meningitis is what she has. Um, It's crazy. And it's, yeah, it's like this again like a bone cracking kind of sound yeah as she turns all like abruptly in the way she does yeah that just 
really gets under my skin. Yeah. And I mean, you know how I feel. Well, you personally know how I feel about like body horror. Yes. Um, I don't know why it's so weird, but it's like kind of my jam. Yeah. <laughs> I find it horrifying. Um, just, yeah. What horror movies can do to the human body. And, yeah. And, um, what's the word? Dysmorph or uh, yeah disfigure the human body in horror yeah. movies um so that, that that's why all the zelda scenes are just so creepy to me because yeah. your body is it's some sort of like body horror yeah it's very very uh macabre yeah macabre um um well i feel like we can't move on from sound without talking about gauges oh vocal my. performances yes oh right? yeah vocal performances, so, absolutely, like, yeah his laugh. His laugh he is nailed that creepy just laugh. Fantastic yeah. and delightful. What is the, the <laughs> actor's name? His name is Miko Hughes. Miko, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Miko's performance. He said he in the um, Q and A that we saw. I don't think he really remembered much of working on the <laughs> film because he was so young. Yeah. But you could tell, and it's something that Mary Lambert talks about is. She could just tell he wanted to perform. Yeah, he wanted he, to give her a performance. It was like some natural yeah. ability there. Mm-hmm. And so you can hear that in just the way he says his lines. Yeah. Especially on the phone, too. Like, I want to play with you. That's one of my favorite lines in the film, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite line. Wait, let me read. I want to read that full line because it, it also it, it, it plays so strong. I forgot to bring this up before. Um, so he says, uh, he says, I played with Judd. Then mommy came and I played with mommy. We played, daddy. We had an awful good time. <laughs> now I want to play with you. It's so good. Ah, so good. And apparently yeah. they recorded that like through the phone, I guess. Like, yeah, they, I they think so. They went through the a few lines, mm-hmm. a few ways to say it, and you said it that way. And it's just, God, yeah, he's yeah. totally having fun with it. Yeah. He's having fun with it. Yeah. And, and I love that. I think that she really made a strong choice here because that she was saying that the studio wanted... Twins. twins right and um something i'll get back to later but that is actually true is ellie is played by twins huh no clue about that before but yeah. she is played by twins um so she is but uh, gage is not and i think it's because she fell in love with with miko she says um about him that he worked like an actor um she could give him direction he learned action he learned cut and and had to stand on his mark he was an actor on this crazy. film it's so crazy he's two years old two years old is he even two uh yeah he might be i like think one so and a half. i think he might be a little younger than two wow so it's like dude bravo miko yeah, young yeah. miko <laughs> young miko killing the game killing the game <laughs> <laughs> literally <laughs> pun intended <laughs> um yeah so that's can i i actually want to uh no, continue to talk about about gage a little bit one more favorite sound moment in the film and it was discovered to me by our experience watching this film in the theater yeah the scene when judd is in back in his home because he realizes that gage is there or something's going on he realizes it's gage Uh he's down judd is downstairs gage is upstairs and in his in judd's home and you so we're sitting in the theater and all of a sudden you're hearing gage his little feet running around 
from you know in in this wonderful stereo mix from from left to right his oh, voice right, laughing uh-huh. from right to left yeah you don't know where he is mm-hmm. and that's established you, your perspective is key in that scene you know when you're hearing the proper sound mix and my god was that scary yeah they do play a lot with the perspective that's why i like kind of haunted house scenes because yeah. they, it allows you to just put things up in the corner mm-hmm. up top in the back it makes you look around your kinda, shoulder yeah like, that gives on. you the truth surround sound it's like there's not actually some kid over yeah here, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh such a fantastic yeah. uh sound moment in the film yeah so bravo even to that, the mixers there even in that scene that you're talking about when um well it's when lewis goes into judd's house to look for gauge i just like the music cue even there's like a string music cue in there mm-hmm. that just adds to the tension yeah so um harping back to your music yeah moment for the sound mm-hmm. yeah a lot of good cues and, and we should mention real quick the um, composer in the film is elliot goldenthal i love this score again i brought it up already but it feels like a back and forth between holy and evil mm. and um I think that's totally appropriate, and it's hard to find this score online, but I think we finally found it. So, yeah, be... or you could say like heavenly and hell, you know, exactly like, heaven and hell, um, which is like our biggest thing with death. Like, if there is a heaven and hell, where are we gonna go? Right. So, and, it makes um, sense that there's that a spiritual. Yeah. So it's like it's slow and peaceful. It seems like there's you know like gentle piano or gentle uh-huh. harp at times, and then it gets into and there's even like choirs. Oh, harp is always if, if it's any kind of spiritual or heavenly yeah. theme to it, there's gonna be some harp. And I think there's like kids, like a kid children's choir or something coming yeah. in for certain moments, and that yeah. feels like you're in a church or something. Uh-huh. And then, and then it gets atmospheric and it gets eerie and it, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a good blend. There's instru- interesting intru- uh, instrumentations. Can't talk. Let's try and say that five times fast. Interesting instrumentations. Interesting instrumentations. Anyways, um, (laughs) um, let's get on to the... um, Say it. Mise-en-scene. Yeah. I'm probably even saying that wrong, honestly. Some people who speak French are probably like, wow, good job. And so what that means is the design. Yes. And all the things that are on screen. The world building on screen, you know, from from set design, production design to performances to just the world you're seeing built on, on screen. Um, so um, I'm gonna credit a few people real quick. Do it. Um, production designer is Michael Z. Hannon. Um, Shout out Michael. He did uh, some films like The Island of the Doctor Moreau, uh, The Punisher. He did Blow. Art direction is Dins Danielson. He did To Live and Die in L.A. The Shout e- out Dins. The X Files, The Hitcher. Set decorator is Kathy Klopp. Shout out Kathy. She did Escape from L.A., My Giant, and Masters of the Universe. And uh, the makeup artist um, Lance. Uh, Anderson and David Anderson. Shout out the Andersons. Um, they uh, Lance did Jurassic Park, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Planet oh, of the dope. Apes, the 2001 version. Uh, he did The Thing, which is like oh, okay, dope. interesting. And he also did uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. He he did the oh, dope. <laughs> he did uh, the zombie makeup, which is like yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of Duh. sense. <laughs> Uh, David Anderson worked on Men in Black, Nutty Professor, wow. Dawn of the Dead. Nutty Professor, that's both, some good makeup too. Right, and both of them did Dawn of the Dead, which again involves zombies, and he also did The Cabin in the Woods. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, corpse kind of makeup the Andersons. Uh, involved here. And, I mean, they did some fantastic work. Yeah. I think the makeup. Zelda alone. Like, Z- Zelda. What the heck? Zelda's insane. Also, Pascal. 
Um, yes. You think about the his bloody the, like the, head, the brain sticking out of his so head. So crazy. And and so interesting. Um, the actor who plays Vincent Pascoe talks about spending hours in the make in makeup for like one line in the movie, and then the rest of the day is That's just what they all complain spent about taking it off. And like he also said something funny. He's like, he would be like on set, like having lunch, and he noticed that like. He, once he came in to have lunch, he would clear the room because people don't want to eat next to this guy with his brain sticking out <laughs> and like all these veins around I'd his face. I'd be there. <laughs> I'd be like, like, dude, that looks dope. Uh, come over here. While I'm eating. There's this. a seat right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, wonderful makeup. And I also like the colors in the film. There's a lot of red and yellow. Uh, yeah. I noticed um, that lead up to Gage's death. And I think that's because he's wearing these yellow overalls. He's got the red uh, kite. Yeah. And uh I don't know. There's always something. I mean, I always know it is primary colors. And I don't know if that's because there is like um, a purity. <clears throat> I don't know if it's because there's a purity to those colors. I mean, those colors make up a lot, you know, secondary yeah. and yeah, treachery yeah. colors. So the fact that they use that for gauge uh, feels like there's some symbolism there. Mm-hmm. You know, the purity of gauge and he's an innocent, pure child. And so dressing him in some primary colors. Hmm. is interesting to me i don't know if they intended for that in wardrobe but i like that I would, a lot though. i would like to assume they did i like, I like <laughs> yeah. that a lot i mean hey i like that you could read it that way that's yeah. interesting yeah um i would like to highlight um the well should we talk about the actors in the film real quick let's let's do that sure um so i mentioned ellie creed was played by twins um Something that Mary Lambert um, mentions is that one of them, um, I think her name was Blaze, she says, that she really uh, captured the um, the real character of her, like the main like heavy moments of her, like uh, emotional moments from her, whereas the other was helpful in other ways in capturing Ellie's like action moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, both had a part to play of the character. Yeah. Um, but we already talked about Miko. Um Fred Gwynn plays Judd, and I think Judd was great, um, and he talks about how he feels like Judd is the Greek chorus of the story, <laughs> and he has, again, phrases that I was saying that I, I love that he has all these lines, or like, in a, he says in a few succinct phrases, he tells you what the movie's really about, you know, he's got these right. lines like, sometimes, dead's better. Oh my gosh, a lot of the, I wrote, you know, some quotes, like, yeah, dead is better, he says that a few yeah. times, mm-hmm. um, which I think is like the bottom of the truth of the whole movie. Yes. Like sometimes dead is better. Like, you know, sometimes you need to let go and deal with your grief. Yeah. And let dead be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, another one line, and we can get back to the actors, is like the soil of a man's heart is stonier. Yeah. So those are like two classic lines that come out of this movie. Mm-hmm. I also like how he says road. Red. 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 Um. <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, so, um, church. Uh, I I kind of kind of quickly want to talk about church. I feel like we're skipping the parents, but church was played by five or six cats, <laughs> actually, each of which could do their own trick. And uh, Mary says they she likes them because they kind of look like plush toys, which makes yeah, a I lot of sense. They were fake at some point. Yeah. Um, and she's like, it's difficult because can't cats can't be trained. Um. But they can be motivated, so they would have to use like, uh, you know, like meat and stuff to like, uh, or like food to, yeah, lead them to want to do certain things. And one thing that I thought was really interesting with with the designing of the film and, and specifically with the church, 
um, so you think about the eyes glowing when he's reborn and how his eyes at certain points would like turn yellow right yes so there's a specific way that they do this that they uh, execute this um, on set um, the uh, cinematographer um, says that they used a um, light flex uh, an instrument that Panavision was making to flash the film as you were shooting it. But they flipped the glass on the light flex so that instead of the light being reflected onto the film, it could be reflected outward. Um, and uh, this is how they could control the glow on the cat's eyes when they needed it to, when they needed to show that with ease. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of like the design is the glowing eyes of the ones that come back yeah you know and that's like a great little neat little trick to show the difference between the dead that come back and yeah and, you know and the good like alive the contrast yeah the contrast and i like that. that it's something done on set yeah admit, something there's practical there's sense, always something, something good about practical that, effects something that kind of like feels that. like reach out and touch it in a way you know like yeah in, i love when that can work it's something that david sandberg does with his lights out movie is like he does some sort of reflection with the eyes using a light mm-hmm. um practically to sh- to show like those little little tiny specks of light that give it just a little bit of eeriness of like an actual figure yeah you know so there's, you know, multiple people do it that way, and I think that's the best way instead of just some CGI glow, mm-hmm. you know, something more or- organic. Totally. And practical. Um, quickly, also about Dale Midkiff, who plays Lewis Creed, and Denise Crosby, who plays Rachel Creed. Um, they were actually, uh, they read together at their audition. Oh. And so yeah, their dynamic was seen during the audition phase, and they end up doing the film together. And I think that's always great when that can happen that way, you know, um the whole thing is to get a certain chemistry alive and i i like the fact that that was found from that stage yeah so that's really neat that they um that, that came to be um and uh then there's also pascal vincent uh, pascal yeah played by brad greenquist and um i just like his character a lot because he's like the dead guy in a horror movie he's the ghost right it's a good go but he's like an angel he's like casper he's like the angel trying to help people yeah he's like casper um he looks scary with his makeup um but it's funny because he has this kind of charm about him too yeah and um you know he's walking around with his brain sassy he's sassy yeah Yeah. he's got brains falling out but he's like got a smile on his face yeah and so it's like you kind of laugh that he looks this way like it's disturbing and and to use this wording in macabre but it's it's funny and he's charming yeah mm-hmm. um i like his character a lot and just to say another tie to the supernatural you know the humanoid ghosts are not always the violent ones yeah. the aggression ones yeah. the aggressive ones it's right. um demonic forces or demonic forces right so um get into a little more uh, uh design of the film the cemetery design i think is great the the headstones their markers you know um yeah that's a <clears throat> <clears throat> something i noted it feels like old and eerie yeah. but also comical yeah you know i like, like some of the, the markers like when you're at disneyland and you see the like, little oh, like tombstones mansion, yeah. at haunted mm-hmm. mansion and you have fun just reading the funny yeah, little yeah, things yeah. that they put that's what's, what it reminded me of that we like from the it's like biffer biffer hell of a sniffer yeah i think so yeah for from this time to this time he made us richer something like that yeah that's yeah so great yeah that's so great yeah that's a good one um i think even in the book i think smucky um, Stephen King's actual cat 
yeah um, he gets a shout out in the book i think yeah. it's like smucky he was obedient just like his daughter oh right yeah. yeah you mentioned that mm-hmm. um and yeah i mean even just the the design of the the micmac burial grounds so I mean, creepy the, yeah dude. I, so I just love like the circular circular pattern and and how it's supposed to resemble like a native american burial ground but there's something about the design like this the form of it that feels feels cultish or like folklore yes but i I was i wanted to say it it feels like kind of off like because the way the stones are placed like it doesn't feel perfect right yeah and there's just something to that that feels even more eerie to me eerier yeah, um, <laughs> um, but also to tie to that the stone, especially the stone element, especially the stones of the path that lead into the woods. Yeah, I would not take that path. Right. Like I'm, I'm good. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm not taking this path of stones leading me to something like I don't yeah. know. I, I just read it as this is a creepy path. I'm yeah. not taking it. <laughs> <laughs> In hindsight, I guess this is just like the me who would not play with a Ouija board when my cousins oh, yeah. all wanted to play with one back yeah. in the day. I'm like, you yeah. guys can do that. I'll be over here no, in my room. No, I didn't do any of that. I'll be playing some video games. I'm not inviting things. Yeah, no. I, I don't need to. My curiosity is not strong in this area. Good Sorry. vibes only. Sorry. I'll inform myself about things, but I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't need to visit spirits. Um. <laughs> anyways, uh, but yeah, that that it's just a creepy design to me, but it's also great. It's effective, right? Yeah, right. Um. Yeah. Um. I love the scene when gauge well love is an interesting word to use here but when he you know kills judd when he stabs his heel and then when he bites him dude that whole thing's crazy um the makeup on i don't like any scene that like deals with splitting of that little oh, part. that part of your yeah yeah that happened in kill bill oh right like, that's, that must be the worst it's gotta be so like, painful uh you can't and, walk. And so the, the look of the makeup of his heel being yeah. cut or above his heel being cut, that's uh. crazy. And even when he bites him too and you just see that him pull that skin off of him. Yeah. And the makeup of Gage is also great. He looks very pale, right? He looks um, dead. He looks dead. Um, but apparently he really, he's actually not necessarily biting him, but he's making contact with Fred Gwynn in that scene. But the way they played on it is like, it's like they're playing, you know? Like, yeah. Just yeah, put your mouth there, but don't bite because that'll hurt. But yeah, but but you know, put your mouth there, and and they were. It's like they played like they were playing, but Fred Gwynn is really acting, and he does a great job. Yeah. So, um, in that moment, so it, it works really nicely. But um, he, again, Miko is acting here, and he Miko. does he does a great job. Yeah. Um, Zelda, her body makeup. makeup is, oh yeah, yeah. <sighs> I mentioned that already. Like, so great. Um. And Zelda's actually played by um by a man. Um It looks yeah. kinda manly. Yeah, he looks kind she looks kinda manly, right? Um Zelda's played by Andrew Hubatsteck. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sorry Huda? sorry, Andrew. <laughs> um wow. <laughs> but um but yeah, I guess they wanted to have like a thin, very thin, small kind of man. Face. Oh yeah, yeah. To, slender. To, the yeah, slender sl- man. Slender man, right, too sort of embody the her her whole vibe her whole thing that she's got going yeah um her spinal meningitis yeah um (laughs) rachel's makeup is pretty gnarly too towards the end and like how they combine the cgi with the with the eyeball leakage that was pretty well done too yeah 
just talk about that. We again. just we talked about that, but dude. But dude. He kisses her. It's gross. <laughs> so gross. Ah, <laughs> oh, but so fantastic. Great yeah. job, um, the makeup team here. Yeah. Any other notes for design? Um. I don't think so. So, any final thoughts on Pet Cemetery or on Mary Lambert's 1989 Pet Cemetery? Well, listen, I. I... I have seen both adaptations now. I, I would say I will probably return to this one more frequently because I think while I appreciate a varied adaptation, um, yeah. I, I, I do still think I I prefer... I mean, I don't know to what effect it is accurate, but Stephen King is telling the story himself. And I just... Uh, there's just... For personal taste, I like his storytelling sensibilities and combined with what Mary Lambert brings to the table and their full team I, I just really love this particular film yeah so i think it's something that i'm gonna come back to more frequently than the other um i really love this film and i think it's one i'm loving more and more um and it, it may be that with time it may be a favorite stephen king adaptation mm-hmm. um i really loved watching this film several times over you know studying it a little bit because there's just so much crap to appreciate the the themes at play are so powerful and so yeah. Um, important to think about in, in our lives in general yeah. you know it, it really touches on things that we have to think about um, that are hard and complicated to think about and I think this provides some kind of yeah evocative story to mm-hmm. think on it and I yeah. think that's the power and influence that cinema can have and so I'm really happy that we have this yeah yeah I agree with everything you said you can give us a little update on whether on how close it is to yeah, the book I will do that you're, you're going through it right now and you mentioned um, the new adaptation and we had seen uh, Pet Cemetery 2 actually at the Billy Wilder Theater yeah we stayed the, for the double bill yeah it was a double bill at the UCLA TV film and, and TV film, archive yeah film and TV archive and so it was interesting to see that they pulled from both movies for the uh, new adaptation in 2019 right that's true a little bit um, just like parts here and there but anyways yeah i agree with what you said like this is just gets better with every rewatch um i don't know which one i would say i like best out of all the stephen king novels or like adaptations Mm -hmm. of his novels i've only really read it or listened to it Mm -hmm. and so um i want to listen to more to see which one really rings true to my interest i cannot wait to see dr sleep in just a couple months now yeah. Loved the, the book personally, and um, I think it's a great sequel to The Shining book, and so I'm so curious to see how it's um, handled to right. be a sequel to the film and the book yeah. of The Shining. So, But, um, and also, like, Mary Lambert's uh, vision uh, with this adaptation, I think, helps. She also said something in a commentary that we were watching how she didn't really want to change anything that Stephen mm-hmm. King had written or done. She was just trying to visualize it, right? Or help with the visualization of it. And so I think she does a really good job at it, and especially bringing in those familial themes into it and, and giving it kind of like more of a touching and heartwarming aspect to it of a family going yeah. through this. And and uh, I think she gave birth right after Right. Or something, or like an, a year, I don't know how long after. She was after, pregnant, but I think, for the sequel. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So it's interesting how she was able to kind of tap into the 
parent mentality and Mm -hmm. how she was able to probably thinking about all these things put that on screen yeah Yeah. and like just dealing with the actors how she was able to deal with gage a two-year-old and bring that kind of performance out of him is a testament to her ability as a director Mm -hmm. and yeah she definitely has an eye for for thriller type scenes and horror and so she's perfect for this i think agreed i'm so happy she came onto this project because she just did a fantastic job um before we close out the episode i just quickly want to um close off with another line from um stephen king that i think kind of wraps this up appropriately um so in regards to the line sometimes lewis dead is better yeah this is what stephen king says about that line he says he's particularly uneasy about it um he says i hope with all my heart that that is not true and yet with in the nightmarish context of pet cemetery it seems to be and it may be okay perhaps sometimes dead is better is grief's last lesson the one we get to after crying out to god to get his own cat Mm. that lesson suggests that in the end we can only find peace in our human lives by accepting the will of the universe that may sound like corny new age crap but the alternative looks to me like a darkness too awful for such mortal creatures as us to bear. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said, exactly, Mr. King. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the whole point. Moral of the story, basically. You yes. know, sometimes dead is better. Dead's better. Yeah. You got to learn how to deal with that. All right. So that will conclude our episode on Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery. So be on the lookout for the next episode of our Women of Horror series next month, where we'll be discussing the Baba Duke. 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 <laughs> oh, man. Um, so much fun. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we also have some new exciting news. We're now streaming on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. So be sure to download, subscribe, and listen on the app of your choice. And you can keep up with our social media for new updates on the podcast and quick movie reviews coming your way. You can find those updates on at the underscore CineSurvey on Instagram and at CineSurvey on Twitter. And Marty, what is your handle if they want to keep up with anything you're watching, what you're doing, stalk you? (laughs) Well... Um, my Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd um, are all at the same uh, handle. You can find me on all of those areas at Marty Ibarra C. That's Marty with a Y, Ibarra with an I. Awesome. And so, yeah, that's it. So until then, until next time, cheers. Cheers.